So this question came in on our YouTube channel in the comments section. Uh, what do we know about the book of Enoch? Well, we've talked about this a couple of times briefly in the past. I thought I would go ahead and just address this question again because it is a fascinating one. Uh, the book of Enoch, for those who are unfamiliar, is uh, a writing uh, that, that is written under the, uh, under the name of Enoch um, that and is generally uh, sort of purported to be from the Enoch that is mentioned in Genesis chapter 5, where Enoch, who is seventh from Adam, um, Merrick, let me go ahead and start there and read about him a little bit. He is an interesting person who we know very little about from Scripture, but what we know about him is really fascinating. Starting in verse 18 of chapter 5 of the book of Genesis, uh, Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And that is the last we hear of Enoch. Uh, here in Genesis, he is mentioned elsewhere, most uh, well-known in the book of Jude, later on in the book of Jude. Why don't we turn there and take just a quick uh, look at that as well. Uh, Jude is the uh, second to last book of the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. And um, uh, in verse 14, we see Jude quoting Enoch when he says in verse 14 again, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So uh, he is speaking here about false teachers, false prophets, and he goes ahead and he quotes Enoch. Now, this has caused a bit of, um, a, quite a bit of discussion, quite a stir about the validity of the book of Enoch. Um, the book of Enoch, virtually nobody really ascribes, uh, like really attributes the book of Enoch to that Enoch that is spoken of in chapter 5 of Genesis. Um, the only thing that, that we can say with, with confidence would be ascribed to him is the quote that Jude uh, gives. And also, there are references elsewhere in the New Testament. Peter uh, re uh, makes reference uh, to things that, Jude, that uh, Enoch talks about. Um, but, uh, but the question arises, does that then therefore, and this is really one of the central questions that comes up, should the book of Enoch therefore then be in the canon of Scripture, since it is quoted and referenced, and there are things uh, from it that we find in the New Testament? Um, uh, that's a good question. Uh, matter of fact, there is um, there is one tradition I know for sure, the Ethiopian tradition. I think it's actually uh, the only, I think, existing copy, full copy, I think, of the Book of Enoch is in Ethiopian. Uh, and a Coptic tradition there uh, holds the Book of Enoch as being part of the canon. Although I think there's some discussion about whether or not it's because it is believed to be inspired or they believe that the content of the Book of Enoch is important enough to preserve, and so therefore it's kept in in, uh, in uh, the Ethiopic uh, Coptic canon, I guess you would call it. But um, but the question of whether or not it is an inspired book, to me, is an interesting question, but I think it's easily answered. I think the answer is no. Uh, by and large, the Book of Enoch, outside of the quote and the references that appear from it, um, uh, would not really be uh, a book that we would consider to be inspired, but rather would be in uh, either categorized in one of two categories. One, apocryphal literature, in other words, literature that is 
not necessarily inspired scripture, but is maybe of some historical value. Uh, books like 1st, 2nd Maccabees, Judith, Tobit, things that appear in a Catholic Bible, uh, but were never accepted among the Jews as being inspired scripture. And so therefore, they're not really part of the canon of scripture, uh, even though some traditions do try to in, uh, include those those writings. Uh, Enoch could be classified among those in one sense, but in a more specific sense, uh, if I'm pronouncing the term correctly, I know I always trip on it, but uh, it would more accurately be considered part of what's called the pseudo-depigraphical writings. In other words, uh, pseudo, meaning uh, like another or an assumed uh, name, um, and then uh, graphical meaning writing, uh, writing under an assumed name, essentially. That's a clumsy way of putting it, but um, uh, there it is. So uh, in other words, the book of Enoch is not really written by the Enoch of Scripture, except again for those those quotes that are uh, mentioned. I would have no problem ascribing those, but the, the book itself... Uh, I, I think is outside the 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 um, you know the the pale of inspired scripture. Um, however, it is an interesting read. It's uh, it's broken down into uh, five sections with 105 chapters, if you will. Some of these chapters are really just a few sentences long, others longer, and that kind of thing. But um, it's broken down into uh, I think it's five sections that include information like um, the origin of. Um, uh, well, matter of fact, why don't we turn to Genesis 6? This is actually a, a huge part of it. Um, the origin of the Nephilim. Uh, the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6 um, is another fascinating, that's a word that could be used a lot in this particular discussion, uh, is a fascinating passage of Scripture. I'm going to go ahead and read it. It's the first four verses of chapter six. Again, this may be unfamiliar, and uh, and if it is unfamiliar to to you, it would probably sound a little odd if you've never really read this passage before, or if you've never stopped to think about what it is that this passage may be speaking of. But let me go ahead and read it. Genesis chapter six, starting in verse one. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and that they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. Uh, there, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown." Now, there are um, uh, uh, a number of names that these Nephilim, or these giants, uh, as the term would uh, speak of, are, are called by in Scripture. We see elsewhere where there are the Anakim uh, and such. There's a group after the flood known as the Rephaim, uh, which is qualitatively different than the Nephilim in, in some sense. Uh, it speaks uh, more having to do with death and, and, uh, and from the abode of the dead and that. Uh, it's very cryptic. It's very uh, odd. It's very strange. Um, and there are a couple, approaches of a, a couple of approaches as to how we would understand Genesis chapter 6. One is to take the view that, um, that the sons of God would speak of the godly line of Seth from Adam and Eve, um, the son born to them after Cain kills Abel. Uh, and then the, the daughters of men would just be, you know, like the, the daughters of Cain and such. And so there's this intermingling of, of, uh, of, these, uh, of these two, and, and they produce these mighty men of renown, these giants and that kind of thing. And the word giant in that understanding of things would not speak of a physical thing, but so much as maybe just 
um, the, the influence and impact that they may have had in the culture at that time. Some hold that view. Uh, the other view, and I think the more straightforward view, is, is, the pa- is that this passage speaks of a very odd uh, an unholy union uh, between angels or sons of God, as the term is often applied to angels, uh, who came in and, and had relations with human women. Now, some will raise the objection at this point and say, well, didn't Jesus say that angels don't get married? Remember when, uh, when, when he was questioned about, um, you know, this, this um, idea of marriage in the after, you know, in, in, uh, in eternity, Jesus said that we're not, we're not married in eternity, but rather we're like the angels. And that has led some to believe that, that means that angels can't get married or something. Um, well, I mean, in terms of eternity, amongst themselves, they don't. And that could be partly because angels are only seen as men in, uh, in eternity. But secondly, um, um, the idea is that it's too strange to think that angels would, in fact, uh, intermingle with human women. However, a straightforward reading of the passage and most of the early commentators in regard to this, uh, uh, Jewish and otherwise, uh, basically attributed um, uh, or basically interpreted, I should say, this passage to speak of that very odd thing. I happen to hold that view myself. Um, it is strange. It is bizarre. But um, the the outworking of that is something that is noted in Scripture. Uh, when we look at um, Goliath, one of the sons of Gath, uh, 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 this is also something that traces its lineage back to this. And Goliath is described as having physical properties that were beyond that of a normal person, six fingers and toes. He was uh, stood uh, based on your measure of a cubit, somewhere between 10 and 13 feet tall. Um, And that was after the flood, right? Again, there are uh, these giants or these men of renown also afterward. The passage reads very strangely. It introduces an idea that is not, uh, I don't think, intended to be seen as sort of just the normal course of things, but these people were just particularly influential as a result of this union of, uh, of, of those who walked with God and those who didn't. I think it's intended to, to say something very different. And so, um, so I, I kind of lay out that preamble for this reason, is that uh, there is in the book of Enoch um, an attempt to explain what happened during this scenario. There are, uh, there's mention of a group called the Watchers, uh, who were created by God as supernatural beings like angels, uh, or maybe even a class of angels. We don't know exactly. Again, we, we don't, I don't believe the book of Enoch is inspired, so I'm not going to put too much weight on these definitions and this explanation. It could be true, but we don't know that it's true. And I want to just make sure I emphasize that we don't hold the book of Enoch on par with scripture where we just, we, 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 where the same kind of homework has been done to demonstrate um, the validity and the veracity of these things. And so I, I hold it on a different and massively lower level than I would scripture. However, in the same way that books like First and Second Maccabees offer historical insight that is valuable, even though the books are uninspired, um, we can glean potentially from, uh, we can glean from those books. It is possible that we could glean from the book of Enoch in some of these things. Again, I say that with some trepidation. I don't personally uh, uh, stake my life or reputation on the descriptions in the book of Enoch describing what went on that the in this in this arena behind uh, behind what the Bible describes. There does seem to be connection here, uh, but at the same time, I don't really know that the stuff in the book of Enoch is necessarily accurate. 
Um, we don't know. For example, the seven archangels are named. Uh, the fact that there are seven archangels is mentioned. Well, we don't know that there are seven archangels, and we certainly don't know if those names are actually accurate, except for Michael and Gabriel are mentioned in there. Uh, Azazel, um, uh, Gadri- Gadriel, I think, is another one. We don't know that these, Raphael and, and, um, and others, we don't know that those are actually the names of what is purported to be seven archangels. Uh, or or uh, some of these weren't archangels. Some of these were, in fact, uh, the watchers in that, Azazel and Gadriel and such. Um, we don't, we don't really know that, you know, we don't have any way to verify those things. All we have is the testimony of the book of Enoch. This is my copy I've had for many, many years. Um, and so I find it fascinating to look into these things, but I, I wouldn't build them as necessary or, uh, certainly not inspired parts of my understanding of theology. They're interesting and they may speak to uh, a proper understanding of these things, but I don't know that for sure. And nobody really does. Um, they, the, 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 the concepts in it uh, were accepted among some in, uh, in Judaism throughout the centuries. Um, uh, the book was well known and read. It's very likely that the disciples were very, very aware of this, of, of, uh, of this writing, which, uh, uh, which really dates back to the 200s BC. It doesn't go all the way back to, um, to the time of Enoch. But um, the earliest copies we have are, uh, again, around the 200s or so BC. And so we don't have any history prior to that that really uh, helps us validate this in any certain kind of way. Uh, you can tell I'm, I'm hedging quite a bit on it because I, I do find it an interesting read. I've actually read, uh, I made sure to pull these off my shelf just so I could mention them and not forget. But uh, some of you are very familiar with Michael Heiser and the work he's done on, on, uh, on Enoch. Um, uh, First Enoch. There's actually three books of Enoch. First Enoch is generally what we mean when we talk about Enoch. Um, but uh, but again, there's some fascinating work done on the subject. Uh, I think it's interesting and it's worth reading. Um, but but we have to read it with caution and recognize that what we're reading in the book of Enoch is not something we can verify or validate with any real true degree of certainty. It could be an accurate representation of a great many things, but we just don't know that. Uh, we can't stand on it like we can inspired scripture. Um, the book of Enoch also speaks of, um, and it gives a, an explanation of, of the heavenly bodies, the stars and such, and their pathways. Um, it refers to the uh, introduction of weapons of war and death uh, as introduced to mankind by some of these watchers that were fallen. By the way, just to kind of finish the thought on the watchers, um, the watchers are those who uh, looked are, are those who looked upon uh, the women uh, uh, of men, the daughters of men, and lusted after them, and and uh, and had uh, relations with them, and that bore these offspring. Then, um, the watchers, interestingly, are also mentioned in Daniel chapter four, mentioned three times in verses thirteen, seventeen, and twenty-three, twice in the singular, once in the plural. Um, uh, and in the second one, uh, uh, or in one of those references, there's mention to a watcher, a holy one. Um, and it would appear that these watchers are given certain responsibility in terms of, of accomplishing or even maybe determining uh, what should be done uh, among the affairs of men, in particular Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. But that's the only mention of the watchers in all of Scripture. And so we don't have any other information about them. There's no explanation about anything about them except what can be fairly implied from the text itself. But then the book of Enoch uh, makes reference, I think, to about 200 of these watchers overall. 
um, that uh, again, some are good, some ultimately become uh, fallen, and so and then the the de- the destiny of these fallen uh, uh, of these watchers, these fallen angels, uh, ultimately is to be in Tartarus, as Peter refers to it, until that until they're ultimately uh, judged, and so. Um, Again, it's it's very interesting. The Book of Enoch does not in any way read like Scripture. It's it's a very very fanciful feeling sounding kind of read, um, and and I, I I do again find it very interesting. But um, I, I'm not among those who put a lot of undue weight on the Book of Enoch. I think it's it's interesting for what it is, but unfortunately because we can't verify the contents of it again, except for the references that like Jude makes or Peter makes reference to and such. Um, those things that we can find referenced in Scripture, those are the only things that I would really camp out and say, okay, well, we know this is inspired. But as far as the rest of the book, I would, I would, I would really hedge on that one pretty significantly. So, uh, for what it's worth, there you go. There's just my thoughts, kind of briefly, on the Book of Enoch. Um, uh, you can get a copy of it virtually, you know, I shouldn't say anywhere, but you can get it on Amazon. You can find it in. Uh, you know, Christian book distributors sometimes. You can find PDFs of it online. Um, you can find Michael Heiser's books writing on it. I've got the two volumes uh, where he only goes up to chapter 71. Again, there's 105 chapters. I don't actually know if he finished um, uh, the remaining um, coverage of, of the Book of Enoch before he passed. But I do find his writing very interesting and fascinating. I, I you know, for again, for what it's worth. Um, so there you go. Uh, if you uh, are more interested in that, I encourage you to go ahead and just read it yourself and, and see what you think. But I, I would strongly, though, uh, having just said that, I would strongly urge you to um, to recognize that there is nobody who necessarily, outside of possibly some, again, in the Ethiopian tradition, uh, nobody really considers the Book of Enoch to be inspired. Even Michael Heiser, who is a, a huge student of the book, uh, was very clear in, in, in saying he didn't feel it was an inspired work. It's just an interesting one that sort of opens a window into the thinking of the times and can illuminate some understandings of some things in Scripture as well, as it would have been one of those extra-biblical writings that would have still had influence upon the thinking of, uh, of many at that time. I think that's a fair assessment. But as far as um, you know, holding it on par with Scripture, it is, uh, you know, Paul tells Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed, given by inspiration of God, and therefore is profitable. It is only God's word that is God-breathed. And so we want to be very careful when we talk about including something else in the canon of Scripture, that which is uh, that is declared to be breathed out by God. Is the book of Enoch that? Clearly not. I don't. I honestly don't think you could possibly read the book of Enoch and not recognize it is very different uh, than the way the rest of the Scripture reads. And I think that um, 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 would be true of the other apocryphal kinds of writings and 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 uh, and other uh, pseudo-depigraphical writings as well. So uh, hopefully that was a little bit helpful. Again, kind of brief. You can go. Uh, I'll try and remember to put the link to our previous discussion on there as well. Some of the same stuff would have been said in both, but I think I covered a little bit more in depth in the other one too. So, uh, but just want to touch on it again. Uh, it's a great question. It is a topic of some conversation. Actually, some very very good friends of mine and I have had conversations about this over the years. And uh, and uh, it's been great fun to talk about it. So uh, hopefully you'll uh, hopefully you gain something out of this little discussion. So thanks for watching. But Father, we thank you and praise you for first and foremost in this context your word. We thank you that your word is in fact breathed out by you yourself. That the Holy Spirit has inspired. Uh, the scripture, and therefore we have it as our rule of faith and our understanding of your character, nature, purposes, plans, your uh, your very your very being, really. And so, 
we would pray that uh, we would hold in the highest regard your word. We thank you for other writings that can help lend some understanding or maybe illuminate a couple of things or at least provide um, some interesting uh, understanding of the thinking of those uh, in earlier times. But Father, help us to be able to discriminate between that which we know is God-breathed and not to be quick to uh, try and insert other things into that. Give us wisdom in that regard. We know that there is warning about uh, you know adding or taking away from your word, and we don't want to fall guilty into that. So, Father, we love you and praise you, and we do bless you for giving us your word. And, uh, Father, we do uh, thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you that um, that uh, what you have given us in your word is all that you uh, have necessarily put your stamp on. And in that, we know we have enough to understand what it is that you would have of us, what it is you would call us to, what it is that awaits us as your children. Uh, Father, we're very thankful for these things. And we do pray that, Father, we would be uh, students of your word above all things. But Father, we love you and praise you for this. We do thank you for the opportunity to discuss these things, and we pray that you give us wisdom in regard to them. Father, thank you. We love you and praise you and pray that we would elevate and exalt Jesus in our lives, in our speech, in our understanding, and that nothing would cloud our understanding and knowledge of him. Father, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.